to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The weather continues to be a major news story throughout the country, so you might wonder how it's affected this year's growing season and, and what effect it's had on the plants of those of us in this area who like to grow things. Joining us now with some early fall season tips is one of our favorite regular guests on the show, Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Oh, thank you, Leonard. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. The hurricane season was late this this year, and there hasn't been a lot of rain in many parts of our area. Uh, can we simply blame it on climate change? Well, you can. You might be able to blame it on climate change, but you know the weather is a fluid and it fluctuates every year a little bit different. I mean, uh, you know, let's take some comparisons. For instance, I mean, this summer, as you said, uh, was a very active weather pattern. Uh, it was in the top ten as far as uh, one of the driest summers. Mm. Uh, and uh, one of the warmest summers on record. Uh, in fact, June, July, and August were extremely hot and dry. Now, and, if we look back a year ago to the summer of 2021, it was the rainiest summer on record. So, you know, this is what's going on with this topsy-turvy weather out there. Uh, if you remember a year ago in the, in the summer of 2021, we got 25 inches of rain that summer. Huh. And, uh, and that was in July, August, September. Now, the winter and spring was very wet too. And then all of a sudden, this early summer, the faucet shut off in <laughs> early June. And the only rain we got this summer was scattered thunderstorms here and there. Now up where I am here in Dutchess County, we got nothing. We got no rain and 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 it, it did some very strange things. It got hot and dry and it was a, a very windy summer. And the mounds did something that I never saw before. Um, the forest began to turn brown. Now, up in, a in the middle of the area, summer, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of August, mm. it turned brown because My. of the lack of rainfall and, uh, and and the windiness and dryness. And especially in areas where there's where there was bedrock outcrops, it just dried right out. Um, so we, we ran into a lot of problems with really dry conditions. Now the weather pattern is starting to change now. It began to rain about three or four weeks ago, and since then we've had about four or five inches of rain. You but have. We're still in a deficit of about ten to twelve inches of rain, and we still need a lot more rain. So, do you recommend certain watering practices? I do. Um, you know, and 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 one of the things we were forced to do here at Native Landscapes, because even through these dry conditions, uh, we were forced to continue to plant, and uh, we set up some irrigation systems uh, on some of our uh, plantings. Now, uh, it, it got so severe that, uh, you know, we run drip irrigation so that there's very little evaporation. Uh, the drought got so severe up here, and I was so concerned about people's wells that uh, I started, we started going around and watering plants by hand just to put the, to put the moisture in and around the root zones of plants. Uh, because, you know, the last thing I want to do is uh, make uh, wells go dry. But it, 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 it went beyond that. Like a lot of, I talked to a lot of farmers, Leonard, and 
uh, they were also complaining about um, about all the dryness. Uh, they were saying that um, <clears throat> it was so dry this summer that the corn uh, uh, tasseled early before the ears got ripe, which is a problem. Hmm. And uh, uh, there was a shortage of pumpkins and gourds this year because of the lack of rain. And, you know, a lot of the fields uh, didn't have high yields unless you had irrigation in those fields. So, so, we, you know, so we're going to see board. that the result of that in Halloween. We will. And, you know, it's funny. We order a lot of pumpkins and gourds here at the garden center. And, and I had to place these orders uh, really early because if I didn't, I wouldn't get them. But, you know, there's another interesting fact, Leonard, about this dry season. You know, it wasn't only dry here in the northeast. You know, it was dry and hot across the whole northern hemisphere. I mean, England had some some of the driest weather they've ever had and hottest weather they've ever had since recorded history. I know it was very dry in Spain. Uh, even, uh, you know, Western North America was very dry. So, you know, it wasn't just a localized problem. It was uh, across the planet. And no rain in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> no even rain in the plane? But it started to rain now, yes. Well, in light of the extreme variations in weather conditions, should we be doing something special to prepare our property and plants for the coming winter? I'm thinking especially about our listeners who have terrace gardens and keep container plantings outside all winter. We are, you know, and when it comes to container planting, when plants really depend on us for survivability, there are a couple of changes we need to make in regards to their care versus plants that are outside uh, in, in the garden. You know, plants that are outside in the garden have a way of communicating with one another and, and getting the nutrients they need out of the native soil, where plants and containers very much depend on our help in order to survive in the winter. For instance, going into the winter, they need to be hydrated uh, vigorously. Uh, you know, this time of year when it gets dry and, and, and it's been dry uh, for the last week or so and it gets windy, uh, uh, plants like us sweat quite a bit. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what we need to do is we need to uh, water them more often. And also, they're going to need some nutrients, you know, and... Uh, I'm not a big fan of, of heavy synthetic fertilizers, natural fertilizers, um, you know, see, you know, some of these fertilizers that have, you know, uh, slow release, uh, natural uh, tendencies uh, are the best type of fertilizers that you can use on outdoor plants. And also, depending on the type of winter we have, some of these plants may need protection, uh, whether it's from the wind. Uh, you know, if we if we get a cold winter like the Farmer's Almanac says we're going to get where it's going to be a cold, snowy winter, we, meet, we may need to insulate the containers a little bit, make sure these plants have containers that can withstand our cold weather, that they won't crack and that they'll survive on our terraces. But, you know, monitor their progress and, you know, stay on top of it all winter. Even in the middle of January, you're going to want to water because our outdoor environment becomes very desert-like when it gets very cold and windy. So we're going to have to give these plants a little bit more water, even in the dead of winter. Now, I make fresh coffee pretty much every day, and I've wondered whether I should put the coffee grinds into, into uh, pots or uh, into the soil. You can... Well, uh, is, is that, that, is that a good nutrient for the for the plants? Well, it it, it, it changes the it, it, 
In some instances, instances yes. It, it changes the plant chemistry a little bit. Coffee grinds tend to acidify the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to make sure that you're putting coffee grinds into plants that like that type of soil additive. You know, I would pretty much stay away from coffee grinds in a, in a plant that's desert-like or, or, or a cactus-type plant because it might be a little too they, – they prefer more of an alkaline soil. What about but, window plants? Just plants? Yes, that- window plants, it, w- it would work. But you, you, you don't want to put them in raw. You want to mix them with a little bit of potting soil huh. and, then, and then add it as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a top dressing to the soil, so to speak. By the way, again, uh, we invite our listeners to join the conversation. Our number here is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. In light of the extreme variations in weather conditions, should we be doing something special to prepare our property and plants for the coming winter? Uh, Didn't... uh, the, the the summer's drought create a lot of problems with lawns. It did, Leonard. And uh, if you if you noticed back in August, mid to late August, just about every lawn had turned crispy brown and was extremely dry. Now lawns have an amazing capability of bouncing back from that dormant dry uh, period uh, once we start getting a little bit of rain. But also, a lot of insects and uh, a lot of diseases tend to follow uh, the lawns as they start to stretch out because, you know, the lawn grass blade itself is very vulnerable to insect and disease infestation. But you've made it clear on past shows that you're not a big fan of manicured lawns and the heavy use of pesticides. Well, that's what I was going to say next. Uh And that is, um, you know, most People will run into their garage and get the insecticides and the fungicides out and start spraying their lawn. I don't think that's necessary. You know, as these heat conditions abate, um, you can you can do it from an ecologically friendly standpoint. What I generally do to my customers, rather than uh, bringing out the pesticides and, uh, and, and, and the insecticide, is go around because chinch bugs, uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of the funguses that affect our rye fescue and bluegrass lawns are now pretty much gone uh, because the hot weather is now gone. So the simple solution to fixing a lot of these problems is going through and raking out the dead grass and putting in a nice layer of topsoil and then overseeding it. This is the, this is the best time of year hmm. to renovate your lawn because grass plants love cool nights, and warm days. Now, we talked about this in the past because many, hopefully many uh, of your listeners have cut the size of their lawn down to about a third of the size it was, and there's just enough room now to play some lawn games because you don't need to have uh, an acre or two of lawn, and everything surrounding that lawn is now a, a wildflower meadow for our native pollinators. So that being said, you know, I, you know, I love my little bit of lawn that I have around my house because, you know, I love to play croquet and I love to play, you know, badminton and some lawn games. But there's no need to have any more lawn than that. Just enough lawn so that you can enjoy a a, a little bit of a lawn game with the family. And so uh, you you recommend that we don't cut the grass as short as we've tended to in the past. Um, (laughs) 
But well, you know, Leonard, you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you what a big seller has been too here at the Garden Center this year, and that are that is real mowers. You know, the old fashioned real mowers that you used to find back in the sixties and seventies, uh, that don't have a motor attached to them, and that if everybody's got a, a, a small enough lawn, you could use the real mower without using any kind of combustible engine, and 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 it does a beautiful, beautiful job. Uh, it, 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 when you get done mowing your lawn with a real mower, it, it, it's got a, a golf course uh, consistency. So you know, a lot of these new real mowers are coming out. In fact, uh, here at Native Landscapes, we're going electric. You know, we now have electric weed eaters. We now have an electric blowers, hmm. which are much quieter uh, than their gas-powered brothers and you know we're now Better for the environment too it's for the environment uh you know i mean you go through some of these neighborhoods in the fall when the leaves are down it, 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 it's deafening you know some some of these high-pitched noises and you know and that's another thing maybe we should touch on leonard a little bit is the bad reputation that leaves have I think we all need yeah, people to burn, want to burn them, but you you think that they they they're uh, nature's mulch. They harbor good insects in the wintertime. All our wonderful insects that are good for our gardens live in our leaf mulch that's in our gardens and in our woods. And if we start blowing them away and piling them at the end of the driveway and burning them. You know, we're going to choke on that horrible, horrible smoke that they create. So my recommendation would be if leaves are on your lawn because you've got a, a, a lot of trees on your property, take your mower over those leaves and grind them down into a compost. And over the winter, the lawn will use that broken up, decomposed leaves as a base to as, as almost a fertilizer. Now, one of the things that these leaves do do to a lawn is acidify the soil. So my recommendation in the fall, just in the areas where you have a lawn, would be to, to do a little liming with calcium in it because grass blades love calcium. Uh, they like a, a, a higher pH. So if you put a little lime and calcium uh, in, in your lawn in the springtime or even in the fall and then overseed it, uh, it's unbelievable what type of lawn you're going to have, but leave them in your beds. Don't, don't, don't take them out of your beds. Use that natural mulch hmm. as 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 an insulator and and, and and as a home for a lot of the beneficial insects. Yeah, because you say many beneficial insects and moths overwinter in the leaf uh, litter. Absolutely, caterpillars. Uh, you know all these wonderful uh, bugs that come out and pollinate all of our flowers and fruit trees. Um, in, in the springtime, uh, live in our, our, our leaf litter. So uh, it's important that we keep that in place uh, to, to keep the insects uh, happy and, and, and to keep their numbers up. My guest is nurseryman and environmentalist Pete Morosky, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we invite your calls at 212 Seven seven. Let's take a couple of calls. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Rose in Flemington, New Jersey. I want to make a comment that I have 
used successfully in pot culture and also ask a question after that. Uh, when I do pot culture, I always put in the bottom of the pot spent tea bags. I'm a tea drinker. I save them. And then I layer up a good, and, and I love seaweed as well. Um, and then I layer it up, and I find that it really does help hold the moisture into the soil. The second thing I'd Wait, like Pete, to add. Wait, Pete, you, you yeah. agree? Yeah, Leonard, it's the same, same, the same concept as you wanted to do with the, uh, with the coffee grinds, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it, they have a high moisture holding capacity, and they are a little bit of a, a, a fertilizer for plants. So, yes, um, what, what Rose is saying makes all the sense in the world. And okay. now I have a stupid question. Have you heard of something called Nomo grass? I think it's called Excelsior. I heard about it maybe five years ago, uh, and then I heard nothing more about it. It's something that you, it, it's from Egypt, as I understood it. They, they mow it once in the spring, and then they leave it and it doesn't need mowing again. Well, Rose, uh, when they talk about Nomo grass, there's a lot of different categories that that grass falls into. Um, you know, as a native plant person, I'm going to steer you toward a grass that's native uh, to this part of the world. And those are the sedges. The sedges are a lot of the grasses you'll find growing, um, you know, on, on, in glens in the woods. Uh, in fact, we've installed some uh, low mow grasses. Sedges, you know, and there's, there's two types of sedges um, that are uh, native uh, to the East Coast. And, you know, one likes the soil a little bit wetter and one likes the soil a little bit drier. Now, these sedges only grow about six to eight inches tall. So what you can do is uh, you, can, you can get rid of all your rye fescue, bluegrass, Bermuda grass, lawn grass, top dress it with a little uh, topsoil, and then plug it with these sedge grasses and you'll find that uh, these grasses only grow a foot high and you never have to mow it. But what you do have to do until it establishes is you have to weed it because there's all these weed seeds blowing around everybody's property and they're going to find an open piece of ground between these sedges. And, you know, for the first couple, three years until this becomes a blanket of grass, you're going to have to go in and, and, and weed it. And then, uh, you know, you'll be surprised. Three or four years down the road, you'll have a nice low sedge uh, lawn, uh, which is uh, very easy to maintain and requires little or no mowing. Okay, Rose? Sounds like, a, sounds like a plan. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you so much for calling us. And let's take another call. Again, our number here is 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. My questions are going to be focused on a pot culture. Plant. Can you talk up, speak up just a little louder, please? Are you able to hear me better now? Oh, oh great. Excellent. Much better. As I was saying, uh, my questions are going to be focusing on uh, uh, the um, pot culture of plant care. I have some large, um, I have one large uh, palm tree, and I have a, a couple of trees in my apartment. And, of course, the heat factor uh, tends to be a problem once winter comes into play. Uh, these are the question I want to ask. You just, uh, the woman prior to me, spoke about um, seaweed and uh, tea bags. If uh, the plant is already in the pot, you can't pull. You don't want to pull the, you know, the plant up and, and put uh, 
that underneath of uh, on the bottom of the pot. Is it possible to break up the uh, the uh, tea bags or uh, seaweed and incorporate it on the top of the plant? You also spoke about natural fertilization pertaining to pot plants, both plants and and medium-sized trees that are going to be in an apartment. What would be the best type of fertilizer, and how would you incorporate more oxygen? I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but I really want my trees to prosper, and I've just located okay. to a new Okay, well, let's stop there for the moment, and then you can come back with more questions. Pete? Okay, let's, let's talk about everything that you wanted to discuss. Now, I have a couple of questions for you before I, I give you, uh, you know, what, what I think you should do. How long have these plants been in the pots inside your home? Uh, I would say three years. Three years. I have a okay. good size. Um, so you talked about a couple of things. You talked about, you know, giving your plants nutrition and, and also soil compaction issues, which are very important. Okay. Regardless of what we do next, what I would do is go through your plants and repot them. Okay. And we may have to put them in a little bit bigger of a pot, but you'll know that when you pull the plants out of the container, you know, they may be root bound, which means that you may see a lot of roots along the edge of the pot, which is telling us we need to give these plants a bigger pot. That's number one. The reason you want to change the soil in the pots is because if you use a container mix that has vermiculite in it, that has a, a, a lighter soil mix, you know, that's how we're going to cure uh, the problem with not enough air in the soil with these lighter soil mixes. Now, when it comes to fertilizing these indoor plants, um, I would, you know, go to the local garden center and go with an organic plant food, indoor plant food, that is made for the particular plant, whether it's a palm, whether it's a cactus, uh, whether it's a bromeliad, that, that that plant will get the most nutritional value from. And, and a lot of these um, fertilizers are liquid-based fertilizers. And you want to stay uh, away from synthetic fertilizers. You want to go with more of an organic, slow-release fertilizer because... Uh, the synthetic fertilizer is like giving it a quick hit, and it's going to be more dependent on you fertilizing uh, the plant on a regular basis, where these slow-release fertilizers will release every time you water the plant. And then uh, you won't have to water the plant as often uh, because, you know, you have this good soil in it now, and, uh, you know, you've got this fertilizer already in place in the soil. But just remember one thing, you know, just like the natural world, as we come into the winter, our indoor plants aren't going to require as much watering as they do in the summertime. Indoor plants go dormant also. So the quickest way to create a problem with your indoor plants is overwatering. And the good rule of thumb on that is water heavy, water deep, and then let the plant almost dry out totally before you water it again. Does that help? Oh, yes. I'm actually smiling. That's beautiful. <laughs> Just one other question pertaining to oxygen. When you uh, live in an apartment, you're going to get heat and what have you. You have a chance to close your windows. Now, I like the light uh, mixture of soil. 
I understand that. Is there anything else that you can suggest? I'll get off and let the next person get on. Thank you. All right. The only thing, you know, you, I might recommend doing in an apartment that's sealed is create some air movement. You know, uh, plants like, you know, air movement and, you know, they don't like air that is stagnant. So maybe get a little bit of a fan and create a little bit of an air movement in the apartment and you'll find that the plants will also respond to that. And, the, you know, and they also love classical music, right, Leonard? Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your day. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, are there any plants that we should, that apartment gardeners should start planting now, Pete? Well, yeah, you know, if, if you wanted to bring in uh, plants into your home, uh, into your uh, apartment, you know, it, it, it's best to consult with an expert on this. And I would go down to the local uh, greenhouse or, 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 or the local garden center that sells indoor plants and, you know, give them what type of environment hmm. your apartment is. Is it a is it a north-facing, south, east, west environment where it's got full sun, dappled shade, you know, and you want to bring in plants that are adapted to that particular environment because you're going to have the most success with plants that are adapted to the environment of your exposure uh, than you will anything else. Okay, let's take another call. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Hello, can yes, you hear me? I can. Great. My name is Sharon, and I'm calling from Hollis, Queens. I'd like to know, what is the best time of the year to both fertilize as well as prune evergreens? Fertilize and prune evergreens is the question. Okay. So if I would, now are these outdoor in the garden or are these in containers? Outdoors, they're my okay. front lawn. Okay. Well, the best time to fertilize anything in the garden is the springtime. Because what we're doing uh, is we're mimicking Mother Nature's uh, rules. And that is, you know, in the springtime, the soil warms up. The plant is ready to bolt and put on a lot of growth that time of year. So, you know, the best time to fertilize a plant is, is in the spring. Now, you know, you can fertilize them a little bit now, and the plant will tell you or show you if it needs a little bit of fertilizer. And let me talk a little bit about the science behind this. If a plant is yellow now and it, it, it's they call chlorotic and it needs to be fertilized, um, don't use a lot of fertilizer. Just use a minimum amount of fertilizer around the root zone of the plant. And uh, don't put any kind of fertilizer in this time of year that is, has a high nitrogen number. You know, the three numbers that you'll see on the, uh, on the fertilizer, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, you want to go with a low nitrogen number this time of year. And also, you want to use a fertilizer that is made for um, evergreens. Uh, you know, a lot of your hollies, your spruces, uh, your andromedas, your rhododendrons require a, an acidic type fertilizer um, like Healthy Start, uh, 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 Holly Tone. You know, these are fertilizers and, and these are the fertilizers I would recommend putting in in the spring that not only have... Um, uh, not only are, are, are good for acid-loving plants, but also have iron in them. 
And iron is uh, is a mineral that uh, will really green up your plants, uh, mountain laurel, andromeda. So, you know, the key to it is, you know, not too much fertilizer, uh, but, you know, a slow fertilization, maybe a little bit in the fall and a little bit more in the spring. And um, you should have uh, pretty good success uh, with that type of uh, implementation. Okay. Great. Now, about pruning. I want to, the, the, the trees have grown to maybe about six feet, two to four inches. And I want to get them down to below my eye level. <laughs> so when I open the door, I actually can see across the street, just from a safety standpoint. <laughs> So what kind of, and I certainly don't want to grow any taller. Um, well, so what's, the, what's my strategy for that? Well, there's two strategies for that, okay? Um, if the tree can be pruned in one session, so to speak, um, you know, you can prune it anytime between now and when it puts on spring growth in uh, March, April, or May. So you've got you got some time to look at the tree, to analyze its um, its its structure and its its form, and prune it into something that you want it to be. Now, and this happens a lot with us because we do a lot of pruning. If I come onto a landscape where the landscape has really overgrown over a period of five to six years, maybe, and everything is just it just it's take everything is just taking over. In some instances, it may require two or three pruning sessions to bring those plants back to the scale of where they need to be in the spot that they are. And this is something that can't be done in one season. You may have to prune it back heavy now, prune it back again next June or July, prune it back again next fall, and that's when it might be the size you're looking for to uh, to cover that space. Now, do you feel that your plants are one prune away or two or three prunes away? Um, yeah, I, I feel at this point if I could lower them a total of maybe six or seven inches. Um, and That's I had started this. I had started this summer. And it was my husband who told me that I was probably pruning them too severely. He said, I just don't, he said, I don't want them to die. Okay. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, additional questions. Do you know what kind of plants they are? I just know that they're evergreens. They're not pines because they don't give, there's not pine cones. Um, And the, uh, the leaves are, they're flat. They're not like long, long leaves or long, I don't even know if you call them leaves on an evergreen. It's a, say it's a bushy evergreen. Let's put it that. Yeah, it sounds like they're used or taxes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, you can prune them back, but don't prune them back to bare wood. Leave a little bit of green left on the shrub. And then, uh, like I said, in the springtime, when it grows back, you know, it'll put more foliage on it. That's when you can prune it back a little bit more. But, you know, the key to making, 
to getting plants to be the, the size you want them to be is, is a slow pruning process, and it may take a little longer than you think. Okay. Okay. I can live with that. Great. Thank, thank you. you. So All right. Good luck. And thank you so much. And you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But I'm not going to cut a single blade of grass. My garden will look just like the distant past. Before the days of agricultural land. Before the time when pebbles turn to sand. When I leave this house, I'm going to stay. I'm forsaking my comforts to live another way. Get my clothes to meet my food from them. We're back with Pete Morosky, uh, who is a nurseryman and environmentalist, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, and a regular contributor to our show, during which we take listener calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Before we uh, get to any more calls... Um, spotted lanternflies have been in the news recently. Do they pose a serious threat? You know, uh, they do, Leonard. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the natural world as far as um, a, lot of, a lot of problems with trees and, 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 and bugs. Uh, the spotted lanternfly um, is something that came about. It's a fairly new invasive fly. Uh, that came here um, uh, back in 2014. Uh, it's a it's a plant native to China, and uh, it was uh, first detected in Pennsylvania. Um, it, it, it it feeds. It, 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 it's a plant hopper, which means it hops from uh, tree to tree or or uh, area to area, and it feeds on fruits, ornamentals, and woody trees. Um, and uh, many uh, botanists, botanists are concerned that um, if this insect continues to spread throughout North America, it could seriously uh, impact uh, the country's grape orchard and um, logging industry. Um, uh, Why so logging? It, I, I understand grapes, but it attacks wood as well? No, it attacks the leaves of the wood, and ah. if, it, if it attacks the leaves... Uh, uh, every year for X amount of years, um, it will um, it, it will eventually kill the tree. I mean, um, you know, and I mentioned this on the last show that I was on. We had another infestation up here. Uh, the gypsy moth or the sponge moth came through uh, in, in northern Dutchess County and over in Fairfield County, which completely defoliated the trees um, uh, this summer. Um, and I saw this happen once before back in the 70s over areas like, um, you know, the mountains that crossed the Hutton over in West Point. And what had happened was the trees were able, you know, trees do communicate with one another. And after two or three defoliations uh, in a season, they'll get together and they'll figure out something to, 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 to fight whatever insect is eating them. And they were able to... Um, to uh, create an insecticide within the sap of their trees hmm. to kill these insects. But uh, let me just 
tell you a lot of other things that are going on from a natural world and what we can do about it. You know, uh, insects like the woolly adelgid, the emerald ash borer, uh, the beech leaf disease, and the spotted lanternfly are creating a lot of havoc uh, in, our, in, in our natural world. And uh, up in Westchester County at the uh, Westchester Community College, there's the Native Plant Center at Westchester Community College, and they have a great lineup of classes for this fall. Uh, and, and one of the classes that caught my eye this year uh, was a, a free re webinar on October 18th titled, What's Bugging Our Forest? And then from that date, from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., they will discuss insect threats and, and what is compromising the health of our forest. Well, how and do people it might get... be something that, that we might want to listen in on because uh, it may help us in, in the management of our local forests and the forests that we own. So how can people get access to that? Well, you got to go to the, uh, uh, the Westchester Community College and Google the Native Plant Center. Uh, they, have a, uh, they have an education, uh, uh, the Native Plant Center has an educational uh, area. And, uh, and I know a lot about this because uh, a couple of years ago, I was an adjunct professor up there and taught a class on integrated landscaping. But they've really expanded their classes. And it's, you know, if you get into the Westchester Community College Native Plant Center, uh, you can hone in on a lot of their um, a lot of their classes, and, and and you know their classes are scientifically based, and um, you can get a lot out of their um, their classes. I can tell you that. Let's take some more calls. Our number here is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. If you want to speak to Pete Morosky, BAI, you're on the air. Hello, uh, this is Russell Barcatapone from Fairlawn, New Jersey, in Bergen County. Uh, I was wondering, when you buy seeds, either for flowers or vegetables in those packets, um, uh, how long is the shelf life to them uh, for ex expiration? When you, like, if I bought one today, uh, how long could I wait uh, the latest to uh, to use it without it? Well, yeah. that's an interesting question. And it's, you know, one of the ones that we researched here at the Garden Center, because uh, we thought the same thing. I mean, how long is the shelf life of seeds uh, on broccoli, carrots, uh, corn, and, and anything else you buy from a garden center? And, you know, I can tell you we've taken seeds from packets that were, that were on our shelves and were there for two or three years, and we put them between a damp piece of cloth, and many of them still germinated. I mean, I've heard interesting stories like um, someone put some daylilies in a, a burlap bag and put them in the corner of their garage and found them 10 years later and planted them, and they lived. So a lot of it depends on the type of plant it is. But in order to test uh, that theory, I would go out and, and, and buy a, a packet of these plants and put a handful of them between two wet paper towels. And if they germinate, um, you got a viable seed source. If they don't, they probably dried up and they're not still and they're still and they're not no longer alive anymore. Oh, because obviously, like with sunflower seeds, like that, yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, it's hard to say. Uh, sunflower seeds it may dry out a little bit quicker. You know, you know there there are a couple of tricks to the trade. You know, you can um, you can put them in a, a film canister and put them in your refrigerator for the season, and and and, and then they you know they 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 might. They might come back that next spring. 
But, uh, you know, I've tried it on a, on a few things. Uh, you know, the stratification of, of those seeds may help. But um, you can try it and, and see what happens, you know. I think, you know, uh, uh, the best method of doing this is uh, taking it right off of the sunflower plant, uh, put them, put them in, 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 in um, film canisters, put them in the back of your refrigerator, and then bring them out in the spring. I, I think you'll be surprised on the succession they have uh, if you do it that way, as long as you have a sterile seed. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. And thank you. Uh, talking about planting things, don't many people plant bulbs this time of year? You know, uh, they do, Leonard. And um, I, I wanted to get into a little bit of a conversation about bulbs. You know, as we know, hyacinths, grapes, um, and, and, uh, 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 or um, uh, trumpets, and, and, and all those other spring flowering bulbs that you plant in the ground this time of year uh, are really not native. They're uh, indigenous to either to the Mediterranean or, or, or Southern Europe and Asia. So, I mean, from an ecological standpoint, I, I, I really don't recommend hmm. uh, planting um, uh, uh, bulbs that, that, that you find in, in, in the garden center. Yeah, we've tulips. talked about this in the past. You've always promoted only indigenous plants. And, and, right. and that's why you've so, called your, your, in fact, your place of business Native Landscapes. That's right. And, and, and what are indigenous bulbs to this part of the world? What's called femoral plants. Um, you know, like our other spring flowering plants that we can plant from Europe, femorals are flowering plants that are short-lived and have a high ecological significance. Um, they're perennials that come out in the spring. Um, they, uh, they basically come out on the forest floor uh, and, and, and grow and bloom and do their thing before the forest trees leaf out. So they take advantage of that short period of time uh, when the ground is warm and the trees haven't really leafed out yet. <clears throat> they, uh, uh, you know, many insects and, 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 and amphibians and, and, and uh, frogs depend on these femorals for survival because they've been They've been working uh, uh, as a team uh, in this symbiotic relationship for thousands of years. And let me just give you some examples of femorals that we do sell here at Native Landscapes. And you're going to have a tough time finding at most garden centers. But they're out there. And these are the trilliums, the bloodroot, the bleeding heart, the marsh marigolds, the jack-in-the-pulpits, the lady slipper orchids, the calendine poppy, native violets, Dutchman's breeches, rue anemone, squirrel corn, trout lily, twin leaf, Virginia bluebells, which are absolutely beautiful, and mayapple. These are the plants you can install in your garden instead of the, uh, the other uh, bulbs that you find that don't really have any ecological significance, but these plants do. And they're just as beautiful, and they're perennials, and they'll come back year after year. Oh, so they're not related to the word ephemeral, which means lasting for a very short time. Well, some of them do, and some of them don't. You know, I mean, even the the, the, the bulbs, the hyacinths, and the crocuses are, are aren't really a long-lasting flowering plant. They have a short blooming period, and then they're gone. 
And these have that similar type of growing mechanism where, you know, there's a certain time of year they come out and, and they'll grow and they'll flower. And then, you know, uh, you can you can fill in your garden uh, with irises and, and the next group of plants that will flower next. But, you know, from a from a ecological standpoint, and if you want to sustain wildlife in your garden, these are these are an important first flower um, to feed some of the early um, uh, uh, bees and insects that are buzzing around uh, early in the growing season. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Pete Moroski the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, and he visits us regularly and takes your calls. Our number is 212-209-2877. Let's go to another caller. BAI, you're on the air. Okay. I'm on the air? It's you. Oh, great, great. Uh, I, I have a question. Uh, um, we ha- uh, it's about a decent barker. Um, and this one is like has a lot of uh, gets a lot of sun. Uh, the leaves are like about two, 24 inches, you know. Uh, but uh, I, and it grows like oh maybe it's hitting the ceiling. Uh, but I wanted to cut it uh, cut it back. Uh, I've tried it before, but it's you know a smaller um, um, uh, Diefenbacher is like cutting the roots. You know when it gets all rooted up and tight, uh, just to I guess kind of doing like you're doing a um, bonsai, you know, like cut the roots and then clip like a lot of the, you know, the leaves and re- refashion them. Uh, but the question I have is uh, about fertilizing it because um, um, I'm trying to make sure I can put this thing back into the same pot and that seems to work. But I don't know about the fertilizer part. Well, what you want to do is, you know, do all the cultural uh, changes that you're going to make to the plant. Like you said, prune it back, score the roots, uh, you know, get this plant ready to kind of rejuvenate itself in the container that you have it in. And once you've brought some good potting soil and filled it up and, 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 and it's in its new container and you've pruned it all back and it's ready to put on some growth, that's when you throw a little fertilizer in it, because that's when it'll 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 start to grow and 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 become a, a new, like you said, dwarf or type of bonsai plant that'll grow. Oh no, a it's not bit a bonsai. Smaller. This is this is a huge plant. <laughs> yeah, I was doing it like a bonsai. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's good. And you know, a, you know, a lot of people are afraid to prune their plants, and you know, my I always tell them. You know, get out there and prune them all the time. You know, a leaf here, a branch there. You know, if you got a good eye and you can structurally bring this plant to a wonderful shape, you know, when do you prune it? Anytime it needs it. So, you know, don't be afraid to prune it and let this thing grow onto the ceiling and it's starting to take over your living room. you got to prune it yeah. way before it gets that big. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for your call. You you wanted to add something there? Okay. Yeah, about um, root uh, hormones or something that comes. Um, yeah, I think it's called root hormones. Is Rooting hormone. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you want to create another plant from the mother plant. Uh, yeah. 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 You wanna you wanna uh, you wanna cut 
cut a section of the plant the out, and if you want to, excuse me. I take the cuttings like I'll have to. It's so big that when you cut it, you can make like, um, you know, nine-inch pieces out of it, and and put it in water. I put it in water to get some roots. Well, um, what you but, do is you you dip it into the rooting hormone, and you put it in a small container of of, of that great potting soil that you just bought, and every day or two, keep it out of the sun and mist it. You really don't have. You can't put it in water, but what we generally do is just mist the plant in a in a very light soil, and you'd be surprised within a, a couple of weeks to a month, it'll have rerooted itself, and you got you know um, a new plant from from the mother plant. I think we have time to slip one more call in here. Bai, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a uh, healthy fig cutting that a friend of mine gave me. My question is when to plant it, and the, the, uh, I've heard that it was early spring or late autumn. The other night it was outside. I had gone out, and it was Friday night, and it went down to about 49 degrees. When I woke up in the morning, many of the leaves were kind of shriveled up and dying. I brought it back in the house, and the rest of the leaves um, rejuvenated. Is it best for me to keep the cutting in the house uh, over the winter and then put it back in the spring, or should I put it back into the soil now? Figs are marginally hardy in our area. You know, there's a few figs that can withstand, I don't know what cultivated variety, you know, the Bensonhurst fig and the Chicago Luster are the two figs that come to my mind that are northern hardy. Um, mm -hmm. If it's a new fig, what I would do is I would put it in the garage or put it in an area where the fig can go dormant, um, you know, which means that you only want to water it a handful of times this winter and then... Bring it out in the spring. Uh, I don't know where you live, but anywhere between uh, mid-May and and mid-June, where the the frost right. is won't won't be back, and uh, you know, and then put it in a bigger container and let them uh, let them do their thing. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about you know, I I love figs, and I and I grow quite a few of them. And around my house, I have them in containers. And what I do is I wheel them because I'm you know I'm up in a cold climate. I wheel them inside the garage in the wintertime, and I let them go totally dormant and totally, totally dry uh, after I brought them garage? in. And then I bring them out every time in the spring, and I get unbelievable amount of figs on, on my trees. So, like I said, the problem with figs in our environment is they're marginally hardy, and if we get a bad winter, uh, you, know, you know, 10 below zero or, or zero degrees, uh, you're going to freeze the plant, and, and you're going to be sorry that you left it outside. Or, or right. Now, you said you put them in the garage. Is that a non-heated garage? It is. Okay. So it is a non-heated garage, but it doesn't get any lower than about 45 degrees. It doesn't get below freezing. So that's, right, okay. that, that seems to be, we used the, to be the in best Brooklyn, and they used to put They used to wrap um, uh, tar paper around it, big ones, and then they'd put a garbage can on top. But I don't have to go to that extreme, obviously. No, there's other, you know, I know guys that, like you say, wrap them, dig a trench next to them, and bury the plants, and uh, excavate them out of the soil the next spring. You know, mm -hmm. there's a there's a couple of methods of doing it. You know, and I know a lot of guys that cover them like you do. You know, I think a lot of it depends on uh, your environment, how protected you are from those real cold, nasty, bitter winds, and um, how hardy the fig is. You know. I, uh, yeah. I have just a couple of minutes left, and uh, Pete, I want to ask you one other thing. 
Are there things that we can do now to help the birds, insects, and animals that live in our landscape to cope with what promises to be unpredictable weather conditions this coming winter? The, the Farmer's Almanac recommends waiting to cut down plants with interesting seed heads because birds uh, feed on them. In fact, prefer them to bird feeders. You have Absolutely, one minute. Absolutely, You have one minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, keeping your meadows tall, keeping the... The, the seed heads on your perennial gardens. And, you know, I've taught my customers that, you know, don't be so quick to cut the seed heads off of many of your perennials, off of many of your shrubs in your garden and even in your meadows. Because not only will the birds feed on them, but they'll use them for cover in the wintertime. And you'll find that birds will now call your property home because you're a food source for them. And they can use the uh, the garden as protection when we get bad winds and, and we get bad snowstorms. So, yes, don't cut those seed heads down until very early in the spring when everything starts growing again. And we, we'll have you back in a couple of months, but how can people contact you in the interim if they have some questions? Well, it's, uh, it's Pete at nativelandscaping.net or nlpalling at gmail.com. Or they can call us at 845-855-7050. They can come up and visit us and hang out at the Garden Center and walk the Appalachian Trail and really enjoy uh, this mountain environment that uh, that we call home up here. Pete, thank you so much. Pete Moroski is the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our nearly 700 past ones at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You might want to check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's given the number 2 WBAI. Or call 212-209-2950. You might also consider becoming a BAI buddy, a sustaining member for $10, $15, or whatever level you choose. Um, but however you decide to help us, please make that call now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And, uh, to everyone who's already stepped up to support PAI in the name of London Lopate at Large, thank you very much. I hope you can join us tomorrow when Eleanor Herman will be here to discuss her new book, Off With Her Head, 3,000 Years of Demonizing Women in Power. We'll see you then.